Hey everyone, Nate, Veronica, and Lauren here from Foodies Watching Movies. Make sure to tune in every other Wednesday for a podcast that's got tasty food talk and epic movie discussions right here on the Journey Into Comics Network at journeyintocomics.com. Hungry for more? Go to the Journey Into Comics Network Patreon for early access and exclusive content at patreon.com backslash journeyintocomics. Following is a Journey to Comics Network production. From the suburbs of Chicago and Illinois, this is The Poor Report with your host, Andrew Poor. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to episode 30 of The Poor Report. I am your host, Andrew Poor, and I want to thank you for joining me here on another great episode. Now, I apologize in advance. I have a little bit of a cold, so my voice is not exactly where it should be, and my sinuses are a little stuffed up, so my voice might sound a little weird to you guys. But I kind of want to just jump right in because there's a lot of news to talk about that's happened since last week. Now, for those of you who don't know... This show, The Poor Report, talks about current events, which is news from the past week. Things that are worth talking about that are going on in the world of government, U.S. relations, world relations, entertainment, all that fun stuff. And actually, this first thing I want to talk about today, which since there's so much to talk about, I'm not really going to do a Poor Force segment because there's like eight or nine things I want to talk about. So I'm just going to jump into the news so we can get both get out of here pretty quick. Now, for those of you who followed on an episode back about flat earthers we talked about a guy who wanted to make a homemade rocket to see the curvature of the earth for himself and then it was delayed due to regulations and the state requirements and all that i just saw an article just bef- like literally just a minute before i started recording from the av club actually talking about his rocket launch which apparently happened so uh article is titled flat earther takes off and homemade rock out rocket sorry Flat Earther takes off in homemade rocket and somehow doesn't die. After announcing back in November that he was preparing to launch himself into space so he could finally prove that the Earth is flat, Mad Mike Hughes actually took a ride in his homemade rocket this weekend, and now everything we know about science has changed. He didn't prove the world is flat, of course, but he did defy all the rules of reality by surviving the journey. As reported by Vice, Hughes' steam-powered rocket featuring the world's research flat Earth on one side, the words, not world, the words research flat earth on the side was launched from a metal rail attached to the back of an RV and it managed to get up to 1,875 feet at 350 miles per hour before it shoot, its parachutes deployed and carried Hughes safely back to the planet, be it flat or spherical. That's pretty impressive for a man who rejects a lot of basic science facts, but as Vice points out, you need to be about 35,000 feet up before you can see the curvature of the earth. That means he wasn't able to get conclusive evidence for either side of this debate, but he does have plans to get himself higher up in the air with a future launch. He could save himself some time by reading a book and discovering conclusive evidence that way, but then nobody would be writing news articles about his wacky rocket adventures. So, wow. Finally a nice follow-up to an article from quite a while back. And I'm kind of surprised it didn't go horribly, horribly wrong, so I guess that's kind of lucky. Uh, probably wouldn't want to talk about the story if he somehow had a injury or death resulting from his homemade rocket but yeah i guess good for him for achieving one of his goals even if he didn't get quite high enough to prove himself wrong which i guess is probably good for him because even if he didn't reach that hike and be like oh it didn't reach it still think the earth is flat moving on 
And so I'll be moving on. And the next thing I want to talk about, which involves the, what I talked about last week, which was that Toys R Us is going to be no more. They've officially filed for bankruptcy. They're closing all their stores. It's just a matter of time. And then out of the blue came what I think the underdog was in the toy industry, a toy store that I had in my mall growing up, and that is KB Toys. Now, KB Toys is coming back. Uh, Strategic Marks, a company that buys and revitalizes defunct brands, owns the KB name and plans to open 1,000 pop-up KB toy stores for Black Friday and the holiday shopping season. My assumption is that there's about a half a billion dollars worth of toys that have been produced for Toys R Us with no place to go, said Strategic Marks president Elia Kassoff in a phone interview with CNN Money. That's a big void that we're hoping to fill up. Toys R Us, which filed for bankruptcy last year, announced last week that it expects to close all of its 735 stores in the U.S., those closures will put 31,000 people out of work and hurt toy manufacturers that depend on the national retailer for distribution. Kassoff said he'd be in contact with Hasbro and Mattel and up to 200 smaller toy suppliers who are looking for new brick-and-mortar retailers. He said he plans to take advantage of a glut of toy manufacturers that have inventory but no place to sell it. To get a quick retail footprint, Kassoff said he's working with companies that specialize in holiday and pop-up retail like Spencer Spirit Holdings, Go Retail Group, and Party City Holt Co. Inc. So if when they go into the mall and one of those empty stores pops up as a Party City or a Toy Go, which shows like calendars and random little baubles. So unless we might see a KB Toys this holiday season. Uh, we're talking to companies that know how to do it. They have a methodology. They're used to rolling out stuff real quickly, he said. After the holiday shopping season ends, Castle will decide which of the pop-up stores will become permanent based on their performance and whether you can negotiate a lease. Strategic Marks bought the KB Toys brand from Bain Capital in 2016. Bain is the same company that bought Toys R Us and took it private in 2006, a process that left the toy company settled with $5.3 billion in debt, from which it never recovered. So yeah, we'll see a losing a Toys R Us but gaining KB Toys, at least temporarily, and maybe forever. Who knows? And that's really it for follow-up news. I, oh, wait, no, I missed another thing. So, I talked about in last episode about these bombings that were happening in the Texas area and how I didn't have a lot of information at the time. So, sorry, that was my dog. Um, so, the person who's the Boston bombings, the Austin bombing, not Boston, the Austin bombing suspect has been captured due to uh, blowing himself up in his car following a pursuit with police. Um, in Round Rock, Texas, it was not much surveillance footage in or near the Austin area FedEx store showing a man in, dis in a disguise dropping off packages, but for investigators from federal, state, and local agencies who had been hunting a mysterious and prolific bomb maker is what they needed, their first big break. Up to that point, in a two-week investigation, officials have never laid eyes on the man they believed was responsible for terrorizing the Texas Capitol since March 2nd. In the security footage, a red 2002 Ford Ranger could be seen, officials said. Because the authorities did not have a license plate number, they began combing through records coming through records, all of them for every vehicle with the same make and model in Texas. Investigators then began trying to match the records with a white male, possibly in his 20s. And there was another more unorthodox clue from the surveillance video, the suspect's hands. He was wearing pink construction gloves. Investigators determined the same type of gloves were available at Home Depot, and they began going through hours of surveillance video from Home Depot locations in and around Austin. They got a hit. A screen video from one store appeared to show the same suspect. Officials now whittled down the number of potential license plates and began a tailing a handful of people. One of them turned out to be Mark Condit, the man who the authorities now believe was the Austin serial bomber. 
In a matter of hours, Mr. Condit's bombing spree, as well as his life, would be over. As SWAT officers closed in, Mr. Condit, a 23-year-old man from the Austin suburbs with no criminal record, ignited one of his homemade devices from inside a different vehicle he was driving early Wednesday and killed himself before he could be apprehended. The dramatic and deadly trail of homemade explosions left two people dead and injured several others, and in a ditch on Interstate 35 and Round Rock, with the windows of the vehicle blown out and his motive as unknown as ever. In the hours after Mr. Condit's death, a portrait of the bomber, his bombs, and his techniques emerged, along with the story of how he was finally stopped. The lucky breaks, investigators, investigative ingenuity, and technology that helped catch one of the most elusive serial bombers in recent decades. By the end of the day, Wednesday, the police had another tool, a 25-minute confession, left on the suspect's phone in which he attempted to describe his odyssey. It is the outcry of a very challenged young man talking about challenges in his personal life that led him to this point, the Austin Police Chief Brian Manley said. Interviews with political leaders briefed on the inquiry along with the briefings from investigators and a federal law enforcement source shed light on an investigation that saw hundreds of federal agents descend on Austin gathering and reconstructing bomb fragments, interviewing witnesses, and gathering video footage. We haven't seen an effort like this in many, many years, said Christopher H. Combs, special agent in charge of the FBI's office in San Antonio. Officials said Mr. Condit planted one bomb in the upscale Travis County neighborhood of Austin on Sunday and tied the bomb's tripwire to a caution children at play sign, which he himself put next to the sidewalk and bought along with four others at a Home Depot. Investigators used his cell phone data to put him on the scene of the explosion in Austin and also got his Google search history. But officials said that the crucial first break came when Mr. Condit mailed the package at the FedEx store earlier this week. Representative Michael McCall, Republican of Texas, said that when Mr. Condit left the FedEx office, he got into a pickup that had been called in by others as a potential lead, and they got the license plate from there and were able to get a cell phone number. He said adding that from there, agents could track the cell phone directly as a location device. Mr. Condit's suicide left more questions than answers about who he was and how he became a bomb maker and why he did it, but Chief Manley seemed to assuage worries about more bombs when he said all seven had been accounted for. Law enforcement officials had worried that Mr. Condit might have placed or sent additional bombs in the hours before he died, and officials said they were still willing to look into whether Mr. Condit had any accomplices. In the Austin suburb of Pluggerville, P-F-L-U-G-E-R-V-I-L-L-E, where Mr. Condit grew up and lived, a steady fear persisted throughout the days, even after his death. Neighbors were forced to evacuate from the area surrounding the house. Mr. Condit shared with two roommates. After investigators found explosive materials there, they were allowed to return late in the day. The Austin police said that they had questioned Mr. Condit's two roommates, one of has been released, the other still being questioned as of Wednesday afternoon. Neither roommate was identified outside Mr. Connett's parents' home, and I'm not going to say that name of the city again. Detective David Fugit with the Austin Police said Mr. Connett's family was cooperating. He was allowing investigators to search the property, including several backyard sheds. We don't have any information to believe the family had any knowledge of these events. That city is a tranquil Austin suburb, nearly 20 miles northeast. It is a spacious town of 59,000 that has long made its unusual name with the silent first letter part of its charm. So I guess it's Pflugerville. As visitors notice when they pass such businesses as Fast Lube, spelled P-F-A-S-T, at times on Wednesday, Mr. Connett's hometown was transformed. Military-style SWAT vehicles sped down the wide avenues. Neighbors and friends say they were stunned that Mr. Connett was the serial bomber. And there's a lot more to this article I don't like going into, but uh, the important thing is that the bombings are now over. The person responsible is being apprehended and is unfortunately deceased, so he's not able to really pay for his crimes. And moving from that to some other news that came out this week, and that revolves... 
the spending bill, um, and it also involves the Treasury Secretary uh, Munchen, who uh, Munchen touts Trump's call for unconstitutional line item veto. So Congress should somehow reinstate the line item veto, even though it was ruled unconstitutional two decades ago, Treasury Secretary Steve Munchen said on Sunday, without offering any ideas of how the legal objections could be amended, President Donald Trump's decision to sign the $1.3 trillion omnibus government spending bill, despite opposing much of it. After proving that final bill on Friday, Trump called for line item veto that would allow him to reject specific provisions of a bill without vetoing the entire thing. After Munchen reiterated that position, host Chris Wallace noted that after Congress passed such a measure in the mid-1990s, the Supreme Court ruled it unconstitutional. Congress could pass a rule, okay, that allows for the line of veto, Munchen said. Wallace informed me that it would actually require a constitutional amendment, a far heavier lift. We don't need to get into a debate. There's a different way of doing things, Munchen said, declining to name any of them. He then returned to bashing Democrats for many of the spending increases for domestic programs in the Trump in the bill Trump signed, the provision that sparked a torrent of criticism from conservative lawmakers and commentators. They expressed a deep disappointment that Trump didn't veto the entire bill, which would have caused a government shutdown. It's unlikely that Congress would attempt to resurrect the line item veto, which was adopted under former President Bill Clinton and used to strike provisions of certain legislation. A federal judge ruled in 1998 that it violated procedural requirements in the Constitution and upset the balance of powers. The Supreme Court upheld that ruling the same year. Since then, former Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama called for Congress to approve versions of a line item veto that they believed would pass constitutional tests. Neither was successful. Trump said on Friday that he would never again sign a bill like the Omnibus, which was approved by a Congress led by his own party in both chambers. Along with line item veto power, Trump said the Senate should do away with the filibuster, which prevents most bills from moving forward without 60 votes. Trump isn't likely to have success on that front either. His own party opposes changing the filibuster rule. And that's it for some political news. Now we're going to kind of get away from that and talk about the Delete Facebook movement. So the Delete Facebook movement is a strong reminder that none of those free services are truly free. You've probably heard the phrase, there's no such thing as a free lunch, but how about this one? If you're not paying, you're not the customer, you're the product. It's a similar concept, ain't nothing free, but with a slightly different spin. I heard it most recently on last week's Slate Political Gab Fest podcast where the co-host David Plotz brought it up in relation to the Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal. It struck me as an especially important phrase to remember in the area of free internet services. It's easy to use services from the likes of Google and Facebook and Twitter every day, never thinking of what you're trading for those services. In the case of Facebook, it's your personal information. In case you aren't Acutely aware, the information gathered about you by Facebook, your interest, your age, your location, your gender, is used to sell advertisements. Rather than you paying Facebook to use its social network, Facebook makes its money by selling ads. That's how it stays free to you and me. Facebook uses the demographic information of its over 2 billion users to sell targeted advertisements. These targeted ads can be relatively benign, like an advertisement for Super Mario Odyssey being served to someone who liked the Nintendo page on Facebook. But that user information can also be used in ways that Facebook users may not like, such as with... Cambridge Analytica, a data firm that used information over 50 million Facebook users to help the Trump campaign target voters. Recent reports regarding the use of Facebook data by Cambridge Analytica sparked enough outrage that the hashtag delete Facebook began trending. As a result, major names like Apple CEO Tim Cook have spoken out against the company. Even a former Facebook executive, the WhatsApp found co-founder Brian Acton, tweeted, 
it is time. Delete hashtag delete Facebook, which sparked the CEO of Tesla and SpaceX, Elon Musk, to remove his company's presence from Facebook. The same type of information used by Cambridge Analytica was also used by Russian bots leading up to the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Uh, thousands of ads were purchased by fake Russian accounts. Facebook says it discovered roughly $100,000 in ad buys from June 2015 to May 2017, representing approximately 3,000 ads connected to nearly 500 affiliated fake accounts. These ads were intended to slow Discord, or so Discord, divide U.S. citizens and galvanize political extremes leading up to the November 2016 election. It may be more shocking if it weren't so logical. Facebook and other free service companies are in the business of using user data to make money. They aren't regulated like public utilities, and they aren't necessarily in the business of protecting your best interests. Do your interests line up with their financial goals? That's the question. It's a good question to keep in mind when you're considering your use of services like Facebook and Twitter in the modern era. As a product in this equation, you, the user, can opt out altogether, and without a product, perhaps companies like Facebook will be more carefully address your interests as they re-examine their business models. And speaking of Facebook, you can find The Poor Rapport on Facebook at The Poor Rapport. I do think it's kind of ridiculous that f- Facebook is kind of selling your personal information to target ads specifically for you. I know if you search enough stuff on Google and all that, you can sometimes get up random things popping up as promoted on your Facebook or Twitter regarding what you're looking at. So things to keep in mind. And if you want to quit Facebook, that's totally up to you. It's kind of hard because it's almost like a utility in and of itself. It's like texting a friend. Facebook connects all of us. That's how I keep in contact with people on the network and everything else going on in my life. So it's kind of hard to quit. But I guess moving on from that to what else is going on in the world, and that is revolving a trade war between the U.S. and China. So what happens when the world's two biggest economies turn on each other? Uh, America and China, the world's two largest economies, may soon be in a trade war. Leaders from the two nations have announced tariffs on each other, but the real fear among businesses, investors, and lawmakers is escalation. This could just be the beginning. The first of many trade actions, as President Trump put it Thursday. Trump announced plans Thursday to impose tariffs of 25% on $50 billion of Chinese exports. On Friday, Trump's global tariffs on steel and aluminum, which includes China, went into effect. Responding to those two later tariffs, China said it would impose tariffs on $3 billion of U.S. exports to China. If it ends there, the skirmish is unlikely to have serious global implications, but the pain of higher costs and price will be felt by workers, businesses, and consumers, both directly and indirectly. Here's what we know and what might be in store in the future. The U.S. will hit Chinese tech and industry. The United States will impose a tariff on 25% of steel coming from China and a 10% tariff on its aluminum. Most nations will be subject to the same U.S.-imposed duties. The Trump administration will also slap a 25% tariff on a range of unannounced products from China, including but limited to communication technology, aerospace information, and machinery. This comes after a U.S. investigation concluded China systematically discriminated against U.S. tech companies operating in that country. These are key trading items. In 2017, the U.S. imported about $150 billion worth of products from China across all these categories. The imports were heavily weighted towards computer and semiconductor equipment, according to U.S. government data and Panjiva, a research firm recently acquired by S&P Global Market Intelligence. China is hitting U.S. farmers and vineyards. China announced Friday it would put tariffs on 128 U.S. exports in response to the steel and aluminum tariffs, according to the Chinese Commerce Ministry. More tariffs could come in retaliation to the U.S. tariffs related to the tech probe. China's tariff on U.S. goods would mostly target wine, fruit, pork, recycled aluminum, and nuts. A full list has not yet been published, but the tariffs would take effect March 31st. Tariffs would range from 15 to 25%, depending on the product. 
all those inputs total 3 billion per year, a relatively small amount. That's just where it begins, though. China is the top consumer for America's 300,000 soybean farmers. China bought 61% of U.S. soybean exports last year, according to the U.S. Soybean Export Council. So far, China has not mentioned it would tariff U.S. soy, but the foreign ministry ominously reminded reporters last week of that figure. China also doesn't have to slap tariffs on American farmers to punish the U.S. It could simply do more business with South America. Brazilian soy exports to China surged nearly 35% last year compared to the year prior, while U.S. soy was only up 2%, according to Panjiva. Brazil ships more soy to China, its top trade partner, than the United States does. Experts say the surge last year was not related to trade policy, but it shows how China has another alternative to U.S. soy. And as someone from the Midwest, soy is big business. Uh, China owns more U.S. government debt than any other nation, and its appetite could cool. China owns $1.17 trillion of U.S. government debt, according to the Treasury Department. That makes it America's biggest lender. China's holdings moved slightly up and down, but as of January, they were at a six-month low. It's unlikely China would dump a lot of its U.S. Treasury bonds all at once. After all, a major debt sale like this would cause prices for the U.S. debt remaining in its portfolio to go down. The real problem, what if China loses appetite and doesn't buy much more U.S. debt? The United States government needs to issue nearly $1 trillion debt this fiscal year to cover its deficit, which is expected to swell more than more in the years to come because of the GOP tax cuts. To fund a deficit, the U.S. sells more debt to other nations, foreign investors, American citizens, and U.S. banks. It's considered one of the safest investments in the world. It's impossible to know what would happen if China stopped buying U.S. debt or significantly slowed its purchase, but at a minimum, it's not an ideal time for the U.S. to aggravate its biggest lender. It is the end of the global economy as we know it. The question sounds dramatic, but the global perceptions of China and the U.S. on trade are reversing. The United States has been the poster child for free trade since World War II, and China, the ultimate protectionist, now the U.S. seeking tariffs while China at least rhetorically saying it wants to fight protectionism. The presidents of Chile and Colombia both described the scenario as the world upside down. Free trade economists say the U.S. is forfeiting its leadership role in global trade, while the Trump administration argues it's trying to make trade benefit more Americans. Meanwhile, China is expanding its global footprint, seeking to develop an ambitious global trade highway known as the One Belt, One Road Initiative. Any geopolitical inclinations are endless, including reverberations with North Korea, Russia, Iran, Latin America, and the Middle East. Trade experts argue that economy links, economic links like trade help prevent real wars. They make countries more dependent on each other, those experts say, and less likely to pursue armed conflict. Is Trump's bite as bad as his bark? All these concerns could be much do about nothing. Trump was set to impose the steel and aluminum tariffs on every country. Top allies and trade partners were threatening retaliation. Then Trump gave exemptions to Mexico, Canada, the European Union, South Korea, Australia, Brazil, and Argentina. That means the top four steel exporters in the U.S. and four of the top seven aluminum exporters won't face the tariff. Trump also repeatedly threatened to tear up the NAFTA, the trade deal between the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. U.S. Trade Representative Robert Leithser, who has been pessimistic about the talks for months, told Senators Thursday that all three sides are now making meaningful, meaningful progress. Trump's tariffs stemming from the tech investigation on China don't take effect for two weeks. That's a long time in the White House. So... More great news on that. And then it probably comes probably the biggest or second biggest, depending on what your focus is. And that involves what happened over the weekend. And that was the March for Our Lives.
Now, the March for Our Lives was a national protest that was started by the Parkland students of Majory Stoneman Douglas High School. It happened five weeks after those events. So just five weeks ago, a gunman killed 17 of their friends and teachers at a school and changed the course of their lives. This this past week, and the students of Majory Stoneman Douglas High School led a historic march for gun control, what they called a march for our lives. Here's how the Parkland Florida students went from experiencing a mass tragedy to launching a mass movement. They took immediate action. Within days of the February 14th shooting, the students made clear their thoughts and prayers were not enough for them. They wanted concrete legislative solutions to this epidemic of mass shootings and an end to the influence of the National Rifle Association. At a rally in Fort Lauderdale, senior Emma Gonzalez called BS on politicians who said no law could have prevented this massacre. Maybe the adults have gotten used to saying it. It is what it is. But if us students have learned anything, it's that you, if you don't study, you will fail, Gonzalez said. In the case, if you actively do nothing, people continually end up dead, so it's time to start doing something. Her classmates insisted that the time for action was now and that could help them heal. They adopted their rallying cry, never again, and a nascent movement formed. They engaged with the media. National news outlets ascended on Parkland to cover the shooting. They found survivors willing to relive the most terrifying moments of their lives and connect them to policies on gun violence. Seniors David Hogg, an aspiring broadcast journalist, and Gonzalez, president of her school's Gay-Straight Alliance, remained poised and eloquent as they fielded reporters' questions. Junior Cameron Caskey laid out the stakes in a CNN opinion article, We can't ignore the issues of gun control that this tragedy raises, and so I'm asking, not, no demanding we take action now. They announced plans to march. On February 18th, the students put everyone on notice. They planned to march for their lives in Washington on March 24th. From the start, they pledged to center students' voices as gun violence survivors and future voters and invited teens across the country to join them. <coughs> One of the things we've been hearing is that it's not the time yet to talk about gun control. So here's the time that we're going to talk about gun control, March 24th. The rally was intended to give students everywhere a chance to beg for their lives, he said. The march had three primary demands. Pass a law to ban the assault weapons, stop the sale of high-capacity magazines, and implement laws that require background checks on all gun purchases, including online and at gun shows. They raised funds. A GoFundMe campaign to support the rally raised more than $1.7 million in three days, on top of $2 million in private donations from Hollywood personalities including George and Amal Clooney, Oprah Winfrey, Steven Spielberg, and Jeffrey Katzenberg. The funds would make the March 24th rally possible, paying for supplies and equipment in coordination of the massive event. As of Sunday, more than 42,000 people had donated nearly $3.5 million to the online fundraiser. They built excitement through small victories. While some shooting victims were still hospitalized and funerals were beginning, students boarded a bus to the state capitol for a lobbying day. They experienced their experience galvanized them in different directions, and many continued to fight along with Stone Douglas parents at the state level for stricter gun laws. They didn't get the assault weapons ban they wanted, but they took but they took heart in Governor Rick Scott's message of passage of measures opposed by the NRA, such as raising the minimum age for gun purchases. Momentum grew for the causes companies cut ties with the NRA. At a CNN town hall, they went ahead. They went head-to-head with Senator Marco Rubio and NRA spokeswoman Dana Loesch on gun laws. Meanwhile, they continued to put pressure on the federal government to pass the universal background checks. On March 14th, one month after the shooting, scores of students across the United States walked out of class to honor the 17 victims and make sure the calls for change take into account the broader context of gun violence. 
We're standing in solidarity with the youth from the mass shootings, but we also know the repercussions of what's going to happen next could fall on black and brown people. They welcome support as never again supporters set their sights on the Washington rally. Partner organization stepped in. Giffords, the gun safety advocacy group named for congressional Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords, a mass shooting survivor, provided transportation to Washington for some Stone Douglas families with the help of New England Patriots CEO Robert Kraft, who provided the team's jet to help families get to Washington. Other Stoneman Douglas students travel with families and friends to the march. Senior Julia Bishop said she chose to attend the rally in Washington in order to feel the heart of support contained within the movement. I wanted to stand on Capitol Hill in the shadow of our country's legislator and express how truly enraged I am that my friends are now dead due to gun violence and there had been nothing done about it. Every town for gun safety supplied operational and logistical resources for marches in Atlanta, Chicago, Columbus, Ohio, Dallas, Denver, Las Vegas, Milwaukee, and New Orleans, the group said Sunday. Additionally, the organization said it gave out $5,000 grants to more than 200 local organizations across the country to ensure that they had operational resources the group helped to support transportation for students from cities including Boston, Baltimore, Chicago, New York, Pittsburgh, and Philadelphia to travel to the march in D.C. Ben & Jerry's also chipped in with grants to fund bus transportation to the march. For entertainment, Miley Cyrus, Ariana Grande, Jennifer Hudson, Common, Demi Lovato, and Vic Mensa committed to performing. Meanwhile, people in the nation's capital lent a hand. Eleven mothers from Metro D.C. banded together to find free housing for participants from out of town. Uh, Chef Jose Andres Think Food Group and various D.C. restaurants offered free and discounted food to student marchers. Sorry, my dog loves when I podcast. Uh, They invited more voices the day before the rally. Stoneman Douglas Sr. David Hogg said the media's biggest mistake while covering the school shootings was not giving black students a voice. When they took the stage for March for Our Lives, Hogg and his classmates made sure not to make the same mistake. Speakers from Chicago, Brooklyn, and Los Angeles also appeared on stage to describe how gun violence affected their communities. We recognize that Parkland received more attention because of its affluence, Jacqueline Corn, a survivor of the Parkland shooting, said in her speech. But we stared at the stage today with those communities who have always stared down the barrel of a gun. Corn was joined on stage by Yolanda Renee King, Martin Luther King Jr.'s granddaughter. The nine-year-old said that like her grandfather, she has too has a dream in which enough is enough. Naomi Wadler, an elementary school student from Virginia, said she was speaking on behalf of African-American girls whose stories don't make the front page of a national newspaper. They encouraged everyone to attend. The students invited others to join them and provide a toolkit to help people organize their own marches. More than 800 groups marched in cities across the U.S. internationally, including London, Madrid, Rome, and Tokyo. In Boston, Majory Stoneman Douglas High School graduate Leslie Chiu said said the march was about gun violence in general, not just school shootings. This is not just in Parkland, she said, it is every community, especially those of color. This is not a moment, this is a movement. They promise there's more to come. Student activists elsewhere are calling for another national walkout on April 20th, the 19th anniversary of the Columbine High School shooting. The Network for Public Education is urging people on the same day to bring attention to school safety through walkouts, sit-ins, or rallies. Otherwise, Never Again is turning its attention to the November midterms to vote up politicians who don't appear to support gun law reform. They've gotten used to being protective of their position, the safety of an action, Hogg told the crowd in Washington on Saturday. To those politicians supported by the NRA, they allow the continued slaughter of our children and our future. I say get your resumes ready. That was a quite a powerful article that really shows how some regular high school students over the course of one incident, helped change 
really the course of the world and whether your whatever your view is on the march or on gun control whether you think it really is taking your guns away that you're that they're your constitutional right through the second amendment or whether you believe that no one really needs to have a gun or however you think if this is too much or not enough you got to kind of commend them for how much enthusiasm how much effort they've put in to see something like this succeed and how they're not disappearing like we've seen in past issues of gun violence and school shootings so i definitely commend them commend them on their effort and that really goes to the other side of the story which involves more fake news really and that involves a fake photo of emma gonzalez um went viral on the far right where parkland teens are villains so having teenagers act as figureheads for a movement has a certain quality that has not gone unnoticed in the wake of the march for lives rally on saturday Judge too harshly, and you are attacking a kid who has balanced trauma with homework. Amplifying a student such as Emma Gonzalez injected optimism among liberal activists in the grinding debate about the role of guns in society. Gonzalez, 18, has been at the flashpoint of this dynamic, appearing in newspapers, on magazine covers, and in prominent spot at the Anchor Rally in Washington, where her speech, which included a prolonged silence, lasted as long as the six minutes it took a gunman at her high school in Parkland, Florida, to kill 17 people on Valentine's Day. Gun control advocates have held up Gonzalez as a figurehead of this movement, splashing her trademark shaved head on t-shirts and viral images. Then there is the other viewpoint of her activism. A doctored animation of Gonzalez tearing the U.S. Constitution in half circulated on social media during the rally after it was lifted from a Teen Vogue story about teenage activists. In the real image, Gonzalez is ripping apart a gun range target. The doctrine image mushrooming across social media appeared to conform the belief among Second Amendment absolutists that calls for stricter gun control measures are transgressive, destroying the very foundation of the United States. The animation bounced around conservative Twitter before it received a signal boost Saturday from actor Adam Baldwin. He tweeted to a quarter of a million followers with the hashtag reading Vorwarts, the German word for forward and an apparent reference to hitler youth whose march song included the word gab the twitter-like social network that is popular refugee for the alt-right tweeted the animation on saturday to more than 100,000 followers then hours later started it with satire it racked up more than 1200 retweets the still images looking more sophisticated than the glitch animation went further appearing to be taken as legitimate by some conservative-minded twitter users the pushback seemed to have gained more traction than the original images although that means that the original image also spread wider. Donald Moynihan, a professor at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, debunked the altered image, saying in a tweet, to a sample of what NRA supporters are doing to teenagers who survived a massacre. Referencing a user named Linda, NRA supporter, who posted the photo and whose accounts have since been suspended, Moynihan's tweet keyed on an idea. Public moments by the Parkland students are being scrutinized and stretched to either bolster or tear down arguments on social media built on the traditional debate much around the dinner table. Generally, one form of criticism of Gonzalez and fellow students, such as David Hogg, 17, has focused on their ages. They're too naive and young to grasp the extent of how money, politics, and policy intersect, the argument goes. It was mentioned in the, in the rights criticism of Hogg's insistence that clear backpacks would infringe on civil rights. The online effort to defuse Hogg has paid off. The first top news video that appears in a YouTube search for David Hogg is a takedown from, from the conservative outlet The Blaze, it's hard not to just go after kids, host Pat Gray said in the video published Saturday describing Hogg. Other elements of Gonzalez have been used in an attempt to discredit her, online and off. For instance, some in conservative circles have circled 
circulate images calling attention to a Cuban flag sewn to her jacket. Emma Gonzalez wearing the flag of an authoritarian communist nation makes sense. They both hate an armed citizenry. One meme shared on Reddit's conservative page, r slash the Donald. It was shared on social media through variations of the theme, including one by conservative commentator Andrew Wilco. Gonzalez's father migrated from Cuba to the United States. As the Post, Samantha Schmidt reported the flag came under attack Sunday from the campaign of Rep. Steve King, a Republican from Iowa. This is how you look when you claim Cuban heritage yet don't speak Spanish and ignore the fact that your ancestors fled the island when the dictatorship turned Cuba into a prison camp. After removing all weapons from its citizens, hence their right to self-defense, said a post on King's campaign page on Facebook. The post also included a photo of Gonzalez at the podium Saturday. A self-identified conservative Parkland students has also been buttressed by the right, which thinks he identifies with its policies. A de facto foil to his classmates, Kyle Kashev, 16, visited President Trump and five Republican U.S. Senators just three weeks after the killings to offer alternatives to the debate. The initial movement in its purest form was amazing. It got corrupted because now it's represented as anti-gun and anti-NRA. Boycott this, boycott that. It's detracting from actual discussions. Kashev told the Post Dan Zak about the work of his classmates. Since then, Kashev has been occasional guest on Fox News Channel, sometimes calling for middle ground with fellow classmates and among those who disagree in the debate. Kashev has echoed critics from on the right side that focus on law enforcement failures, not gun laws, is the way forward. But he's also targeted his classmates on the conservative media circuit. Hogg's comments at the rally were egregious and inflammatory, Kashev said on Fox News on Saturday, and he criticized Hogg numerous times on Twitter. On Sunday, Kashev challenged classmates Cameron Kasky to a debate. His argument has been bolstered by the NRA, which has published videos decrying Hogg's use of explicit language and suggesting his activist peers would be unknown if their classmates were still alive, saved by a gun-carrying officer. Conservatives who have asserted that high school students have limited understanding and legitimacy in the gun debate have taken a shine to the Parkland student. You will include Kyle Kashuv in your story. Yes, Baldwin asked the Post in a direct message on Twitter. So it seems that for there's always going to be a person to combat a view or challenge you. And it seems that uh, this student, this Kyle Kashuv, is kind of uh, a foil to uh, David Hogg and and Emma Gonzalez. And kind of speaking of guns, it actually has another gone a little full circle, and that involves Remington, one of America's oldest gun makers, files for bankruptcy. Now, I thought that was kind of interesting, seeing Remington as a very popular, well-known gun manufacturer, and it's now filed for bankruptcy. And it isn't in relation to any of the what's been going on, but I thought it was still kind of worth mentioning, at least briefly, in this uh, episode here. And now it moves on to something that happened Sunday night, and that involves more Stormy Daniels news, which involves her 60-minute interview with Anderson Cooper. So uh, Stormy Daniels broke her silence after alleged affair with Donald Trump, and what she says were threats to keep her quiet interview with Anderson Cooper that aired Sunday night on CBS's 60 Minutes. Some of the details became known before the interview, but there were at least five revelations that not previously been made public. He knows I'm telling the truth, Daniels told Cooper, referring to the president the White House has denied the affair happened. The last time Daniels talked about her 2006 relationship with Trump was in 2011 to the parent company of Life and Style and In Touch magazine. Daniels, whose name, real name is Stephanie Clifford, told Cooper she was never paid the 15000 the publication offered her to publish the story. While the interview was done in 2011, the story was not published until this January. The magazine also released the full stream transcript of Daniels' conversation with reporter 
Jordy Lip McGraw. Uh, Daniel's attorney has repeated that said that she was threatened, but the details of the alleged threat has never been made public until now. Daniel said Trump's personal attorney, Michael Cohen, threatened to sue shortly after the interview she did with the magazine a few weeks later. She says, a man approached her in Las Vegas. I was in a parking lot going to a fitness class with my infant daughter, Daniel said, and a guy walked up to me and said to me, leave Trump alone, forget the story, and then he leaned around and looked at my daughter and said, it's a beautiful little girl, it'd be a shame if something happened to her mom, and then he was gone. Daniel said she was shaken by the experience, but never told police out of fear. On CNN's New Day on Monday, her attorney, Michael Avenatti, said there's no doubt that Cohen or someone from the Trump organization was behind the alleged threat. That's the only place it could come from. Cohen's attorney denies his client was in any way involved. Mr. Cohen had absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with any such person or incident. Brent Blakely said, Gossip website sparked new interest in alleged affair. Before InTouch published its story, a gossip website got wind of Daniel's alleged tist. Trist and published a few details. Four years later, when Trump ran for president, Daniel said she was contacted by various media outlets to tell her story. Suddenly, people are reaching out to me again, offering me money, large amounts of money. Was I tempted? Yes, I struggle with it. And then I got the call. I think I have the best deal for you, she recalled her attorney at the time, saying, The deal was an offer not to tell her story. The person making the offer, she said, was Cohen. Eventually, she signed the deal, as did Cohen, and he paid her 130000 in hush money. I think some people are going to doubt that you entered into this negotiation because you feared for your safety, Cooper said. They're going to think you saw an opportunity. I think, in fact, that I didn't even negotiate. I just quickly said yes to the very strict contract, Daniel said. And what most people will agree with me, it's an extremely low number. It's all the proof I need. Cohen has admitted to playing Daniels, but maintains it was independent of the Trump campaign. Uh, she didn't want to have sex that night. In 2018, In Touch Magazine finally published a transcript of what Daniel had said about her alleged affair with Donald Trump. She said she had unprotected sex with him, but she told him she told Cooper she didn't want to have sex at all that night. She had asked to use the restroom in Trump's hotel room, she said, and when she came out, he was perched on the bed. And I was like, ugh, here we go, she said. And I just felt like maybe it was sort of, I had it coming for making a bad decision for going to someone's room alone, and I just heard the voice in my head. Well, you put yourself in a bad situation and bad things happen, so you deserve this. But I didn't say no. I'm not a victim. Dales added, adding that it was consensual sex. She said she was pressured to deny the affair. In 2018, her story was out and Daniels was being pursued by the media. She did two interviews without revealing anything about her alleged affair with Trump. 